Let's pray to our Lord together. Uh, gracious God, we accept your, uh, your invitation to be in this place to celebrate you, our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, God, whatever, uh, whatever we came from this week, uh, whatever kind of week uh, that we've had, Lord, whatever kind of life that we've been had, we, we bring it here. We bring it before you. We bring our, our doubts. We bring our skepticism. We bring our failures. We bring our faults, Lord, and we lay it before, God, your empty cross. <laughs> because you have risen and you have forgiven us and you are here in this place. God, we ask that as we open up your word again this morning that you open up our hearts and mind and pour into us, God. Give us an experience of your grace, of your love, of your mercy. God, teach us who you are. Teach us to be better followers of you. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, if you will, uh, on this Easter morning... If you'll permit me uh, one, well, at least one, uh, <laughs> if you'll permit me one cliche, uh, I love Easter. <laughs> it's cliche because here's a pastor standing on the stage of a church talking to a church in a message saying, hey, I love Easter. What's not to love? And there's just this sense of, uh, of, of optimism in the air. That's just fantastic. Uh, you can hear it in the songs that we're singing, being together as a body, as a group. I love it. Uh, years ago, as a staff, we took um, this uh, like personality uh, trait uh, kind of discerner called Strengths Finder. And it's just uh, telling us kind of how our personalities are wired. It, it might not be a surprise to a lot of you that one of mine came back as positivity. Actually, the top one, by a margin, came back as positivity. Is This vision just to see the glass as perpetually half full. And so it's no surprise that I just, I love uh, Easter and being, being together. But if you'll let me critique it for just a moment as well. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to critique it, but if I can uh, critique Easter for just a moment here this morning, I'd say something along the lines of the problem with Easter, the problem with all this great, optimistic, positive feeling towards Easter, that anything is possible, is that that feeling of Easter just isn't quite this, the Bible's sentiment of Easter. As much as I, as I love the sense of optimism, it's that this idea about Easter has taken over the actual Easter and so we want to revisit that scene uh, yet again this morning to try to reclaim a bit of that, that original Easter. Uh, now, uh, to be fair, th- there's something about this sentiment of Easter, that there's anything that is possible. It, it comes from a place. It, it probably comes um, from people like me, from the church, people like us, who, who teach the, the world, who tell the world that, that this day is about, well, it's about resurrection, Right? It's about new life, right? And so when we start to, to put that on a graphic or on a picture to send it out, sometimes resurrection, sometimes new life gets turned into like pictures of, of trees budding, right? And, and of uh, Easter lilies or any kind of other flowers popping up through the ground. And we say, they're there. It's new life. And it's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful metaphor. But, but it's just that. It's, it's an image. It's a metaphor, I think the dumbing down or the, the spiritualizing or the, the comfortable nature of Easter is what it is 
in part because we've told the world that's what it is. And so we're going to push back on that. And if you're willing to take a, a, a trip along with me for a few minutes this morning, if you're willing to, to join with me on this journey, I invite you to, to become a little less comfortable with Easter. Uh, to, to, to sit and to simply be and stay in that discomfort. Um, to, to help get us there, I picked what I think is maybe one of the, one of the most uh, uncomfortable Bible passages, resurrection Bible stories, that there is. And you'll know what I mean in just here a few minutes. Let's read it together. It's on the, the front of the flow sheets, also on the screen behind me. It comes from Luke uh, 24. Jesus had already risen uh, from the grave. He's appeared to a number of people, and now he's appearing to the disciples. And he says this in Luke 24. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I. Touch me. See, a, a, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he, uh, when he had said this, he, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did, did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of, of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence while I assume they stared on <laughs> slack John. What is going on? It's a weird passage, especially if you don't kind of over-spiritualize it. And if, you, if you think about the concrete image that Luke is, is painting for us, I mean, here's Jesus risen from the dead. He's walking around. He shows them his hands and his feet, presumably because they still got holes in from the cross over on Friday. And now here on Sunday, he's saying, listen, you got to believe me. This is, I'm, I'm not a joke. I'm not a, I'm not a ghost. I'm right here in front of you. Hey, uh, give, me, give me some of that fish over there. This is a piece. So I just imagine they've, they're having dinner or breakfast or something. And he's like, hey, let me in on that. I, it's been since Friday. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> I would, have, I would have thought a, a bit more out of that. You know, something delicious. But piece of broiled fish, we'll go with that. It's weird. It's, it's almost like got this element of being raw to it. It's real. It's gritty. And the closer and closer we dwell on it and imagine it and, and just see this scene happening, I think the more uncomfortable it gets for us, uncomfortable in a good way, because, because to the level to which we can see it as uncomfortable, we can actually experience and we can actually go find that actual uh, Easter that happened so many years ago. Uh, first of all, I, I want to do a couple things this morning. Um, I want to kind of like walk through and say, just what is it about this story that's so bizarre? How can we even believe this thing and offer some evidence uh, what the disciples were looking at, what the world were looking at, why this movement started? But more importantly, kind of adapting some of the thoughts of some other authors and readers like Tim Keller, just say, yeah, I think it's got some three implications maybe. The story if we, if we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable with it, it impacts us in three different places. I think it impacts our minds, our wills, and our, and our hearts. Lastly, and perhaps most of all. Uh, but, but first, we, we delve into some of the evidence that we look at and say, how, how can you believe such a crazy story? 
It doesn't make any sense. People don't come back from the dead. They certainly don't hang out with their, uh, with their friend grove and, and eat some broiled fish with them. How could you possibly believe such a preposterous story? And so to take a look at some of the evidence here, and we go, you know, there's something about this story that even though it's so preposterous, there's a few key elements behind it. Maybe it's not quite so ridiculous, or at least if it's ridiculous, maybe it's not quite so bizarre uh, that we might find ourselves believing it. First of all, we see um, the story as it's told to us, as we heard read to us to start off our service together, Jesus appears to some women, uh, among them Mary Magdalene. That's a bizarre little fact in the, in the first century as it is today. I'll tell you why. In the first century, when Jesus appears to the women, if you're making up this story, I mean, if you're just eh, kind of out of thin air, we got Luke and he's just telling a tale. He's like, this is going to be a wild one, right? He's going to you know, eat some fish. No, if he's making up this story, he'd probably have them like, I don't know, appear to somebody with some weight behind him, with some credibility. I don't know, have them appear to a, to a reporter, historian, maybe, maybe one of the religious leaders, like told you so, man. maybe a photographer, somebody. But Jesus, um, he rises from the dead and he appears to women. And you think, dude, that dead, look, you got it all wrong. That's the exact wrong group of people you, you want him to appear to. Because in the first century, women had absolutely no legal standing whatsoever. If you're going to accuse someone of a crime and you call in some, some uh, witnesses to offer testimony, Women's witnesses didn't even count. They had to have a man testify on behalf of them. It's prejudice as it is, Luke, you're spinning a tail, but you're heading in all the wrong direction. And even today, even today, there's such a thing as credibility in a courtroom. That the, the uh, legal teams, they, they work opposed to each other. And if they want to dismantle somebody's testimony, they'll go after the person themselves. You can't believe Joe because you wouldn't believe how many times he's, he's lied about things in the past. And you have no, no standing to believe what he says today. Jesus appears to not only people who have no legal standing to testify, but he also appears to Mary Magdalene, a chief among them, named Mary Magdalene, who was only a few years prior working as a prostitute. It's like, Luke, not exactly the type of people you want testifying to this guy. And it's almost like we look back and say, exactly. If there was any other way that Luke could tell the story that, that didn't include them being the first witnesses, he would. But simply the fact that he says it, it's almost like he's scratching his head going, you know, I wouldn't have it this way either, but I just got to tell you, it happened. I call it like I see it, and that's just what happened. I'm not trying to spin a fiction here. I'm reporting fact. And so I'm just telling you, it's not ideal, but it happened. Along with that, there's this case of the missing body. You know, people kind of look at that and go, well, well, his, his body's gone, we know that, and we have what happened to it? A couple of options. You know, first of all, you, you got the uh, people against Jesus, his enemies. He's a polarizing figure, love him or hate him. People had opinions. And maybe the enemies came, swiped the body out of the tomb, and hid it somewhere. Now, it, it's a bit unlikely because they had already crucified him, given him the death of a murderer and a thief, 
And so the political battle, the battle for the hearts and minds of the people had already been won on Friday. All they needed to do was nothing. But if they had wanted to make sure that he doesn't get um, memorialized or anything like that in the tomb, they, they swipe his body out. Jesus' movement gets legs under it almost immediately. Why not just present the body? <laughs> you know, I think he rose from the dead, and I'm telling people that I saw him. No, he didn't. We paid this guy a hundred bucks to break in. His, his body, you can fit, the address is right here. Go, visit, dig him up, I dare you. Why not present the body? On the other hand, perhaps more likely, is maybe the disciples came in. The ones who, who heard him predict his death so many times. The one who, who even heard him predict his resurrection a couple times. And say, you know what, this is supposed to happen he, he told us about it previously. Maybe they kind of broke into the tomb, swiped the body. Maybe they hid it. I think, I think that it's vastly unlikely that the group of people who are at the center of the, what would be then greatest hoax in history would immediately offer all of themselves even their lives for this hoax. All of the disciples, except one, except for the one that was put in charge of taking care of Jesus' mom after he died, all of the other disciples died broke, (laughs) dangerous, and young deaths. They're willing to do whatever it took for whatever it was that they saw, and I submit to you, I don't think they were willing to die for a hoax. I think they saw the risen Jesus. On top of that, you have this massive movement, right? The, the Jewish uh, people have survived millennia, centuries, more. They've survived for so long, somehow retaining their identity this entire time. I mean, historians just look back at it, and it's, it's incredible to look at these people. Like, what is it about these peculiar people that last so long? I mean, exile, oppression, cultural infiltration, whatever it is, they have a way of maintaining their identity. They do the same rituals, the same prayers, the same services, the same activities. They, they are such a cohesive people group. And almost overnight, this starts to change. Not just a few people at a time, but, but hundreds, even thousands of people seem to give up their whole identities for this new one. They, they give up all of these, these practices that are just ingrained in them. And they've been going to the temple and offering animal sacrifices for, for millennia, but now all of a sudden, the sacrifice has been paid and they no longer do it. How do you explain that? I mean, they, they have been uh, peculiar people engaging in peculiar activities, like, like uh, abstaining from certain foods. And now all of a sudden, they start eating things that from before was one of the gravest sins that they could possibly commit. How do you explain that? Their day, another peculiar activity that, that even Josephus, the historian, just like writes about these Jewish people. It's, it's the weirdest thing. They take one day off every seven. Like every Saturday, they just, they just like don't do anything. I don't understand it. 
But somehow it's like who they are, no matter what culture or system they're set in, all of a sudden they take what's so important to them, what they've held on to for so long against all odds, and they say, you know what, hey, let's, let's move it one more day. Let's go to Sunday now. What happened on Sunday that made them so quick to give up this cultural transition? Except unless people saw a man rise from the dead. They saw him resurrected. And they're going, I know it's crazy. I know it's weird. I know it's raw and it's gritty. And I know to an extent, it doesn't make any sense at all. But I just got to tell you, I wouldn't believe it either, except I saw him. Except I met him. I saw the holes. <laughs> Watched him eat a piece of broiled fish. Otherwise, I'd never believe it either. But I can't deny it. What does it mean? So a man came back to life. What does it mean? Lots of people have come back to life. Uh, uh, stories uh, in the news, uh, near-death experiences, they call them. People who say, I was dead. You know, the, the, the docs say, uh, hey, when you're dead for so long, a heartbeat is not beating for so long, you're dead. And then all of a sudden, it like started beating again. I came back from the dead. Other stories, you know, in all kinds of different cultures, stories about people coming back from the dead, even from longer. Even in the Jewish stories, even in the Old Testament, there's lots of stories about people coming back from the dead. The prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah, Elisha, they both raised people from the dead. They were dead for a while, and then they, like hearts started beating again. They came back to life. Even in the New Testament, Jesus raises a friend of his in John 11 named Lazarus. He was dead for days. Jesus showed up. And in like the old school King James Version of the Bible, I, I love it the best. He goes, yeah, Jesus, he stinketh. <laughs> He's been locked away for a couple of days now. Man, he, this is not going to smell good when we open up this door. No, no. Bring him on out. Lazarus, come on out. And he does. They roll the stone away, they, they roll the door out, and, and Lazarus like, comes out, still all wrapped up, just like they saw him last. And, and they, they say, hey, unwrap him, like, get him ready. The, the, the guy is alive again. There's been lots of stories of people coming back to life, both today and back then. What makes this one different? Why, why do we celebrate this one? Why do we remember this one uniquely on this day every year? I think Paul explains it the best. You know, in the book of Acts, he's, uh, he's hanging out with some philosophers. And he, uh, and he goes to their gathering where they're sitting around. I picture it as a cross between a coffee shop and a, and a craft brewery. You know, where They just kind of sit around and, and talk to each other for a long, long time. But um, it, it's cool. The philosophers are debating different ideas. And they turn to Paul and they go, we've heard some crazy ideas come from your direction. Tell us about that a little. And, and Paul said, all right, you know, and he starts introducing the idea and he starts talking about how this man, Jesus Christ, he was dead and then he came back to life. And they're kind of like, okay, okay. 
And they're totally fine with it. And then he gets to the part at the end and goes, if this one is different, this one is different because Jesus didn't just rise from the dead like everybody else. Everybody else, when they rose from the dead, they died again. Lazarus isn't around. The kids that Elijah and Elisha raised from the dead died again. And in all of the other stories, the one who, who rises from the dead again can't be found. He's dead again. Paul says, this is, this is what's so unique about Jesus, is that when he rises from the dead, he doesn't just, just escape death, he beats death. It's like he doesn't just sneak out of the grave. No, no, no. He absolutely destroys the grave. And so that, that death has no more hold on him. It's not that he, he fled outside of death. It's that he no longer lives under the shadow of death anymore at all. And here's the thing. He says that promise is for you too. To the extent that you put yourself, your belief, your will, your heart into his hands, you'll rise too. But here's what you have to do. And this is, this is the first impact. He goes, this is what you have to do. You have to repent. You have to believe. You have to put all of your trust in him. And the philosophers were totally fine with this up until the point that he said, listen, 100% has to be in him. At that they said, no, no more. And they threw him out. Some went along with him, but most just threw him out and said, we're done listening to you. Because there's something about the journey that they loved. There's something about the search that they appreciated. I think we can kind of appreciate that too. I think we kind of live there as well. Even now, people, uh, everybody, we're spiritual people. I ask people all the time, are you a spiritual person? Generally, it's, it's like, absolutely, yes. Very few people deny that. Because we love the idea of ourselves as spiritual people, spiritual people on a journey, looking, searching. But to the extent that we keep searching, we don't actually have to change our lives at all. Which is what the philosophers found. As long as we're just listening to stories at the coffee shop, just kind of taking it all in, it, actually, it, it bears no, no impact in my life. But as soon as I hear, or as soon as I come to some conclusions and decide for myself, as soon as we look at the evidence before us and they say, did he or didn't he raise from the dead? Because there is no middle ground. If he did, all of life has to now be reoriented around this belief. The resurrection, first of all, I think it impacts our mind. And we have to make that critical decision. Did he or didn't he? At some point, the search is over. And we have to make a call. Next one, a difference the resurrection makes is that it affects the, the things that we desire, the things that we long for, the will of ours, what we most want out of this life. Um, uh, 
a lot of you I know are on, uh, on, on Facebook, social media, something. I've often wondered, what is it about social media, what is it about Facebook, let's say, that's so uh, enveloping, was so popular, that just draws us in? And I'm no exception. I was like Facebooking pictures like just this morning <laughs> about what's going on. There's something to it, besides the cat pictures, I want to say. Um, <laughs> there's something to social media, Facebook, that, that says... That says, I want to know what the world is up to. More than that, especially with Facebook, we'll say, I want to know what my world is up to. I want to know everything that's going on. Because I think at the core of it, there's this fear, there's this belief that, that I don't want to miss out. I mean, if, if somebody's going out to a new restaurant, I want to go there. If somebody's going on a trip, I want to see it. If somebody's doing anything or going anywhere or thinking about anything, I want to know it because I don't want to miss out on anything. I hate to bring it up again, but a couple of you have heard the expression YOLO. I know nobody in the room has ever used that because you're good people. (laughs) You come to church on Sunday. Um, You only live once, right? The core and the idea of you only live once is that, hey, you've only got one go-around at this, so grab as much as you possibly can on this go-around because, listen, it's almost over. And, And if you're, like, moving out of your 20s, as some people are, it's almost done. So, so quick, grab as much as you can. And we, we kind of buy into it to an extent. Like, why, why would you adhere to the, the, puritanical belief system that you were raised with that that maybe you shouldn't have sex until you're married when you know that everybody around you is doing it. And so so you're missing out on this terrific experience of of, of great sex when you're missing out on looking at food, just meals, going out to eat. You've got to just soak it all in because people are experiencing things. Why would you not? You only get one go around at it. Fancy trips, just Caribbean vacations, traveling to Europe. You've got to do it all because after all, you only have one go around at this and so we need to grab as much as we possibly can and not miss out on anything. Easter story looks at at YOLO and says, that is complete garbage. The story that we just heard from, the story that we heard from that says, look at my hands, look at my feet. You think I'm a ghost? You think I'm this over-spiritualized? No, no, no. Watch me eat a piece of broiled fish. That story says, this resurrection, your resurrection It isn't spiritualized. It isn't a a, a wispy little angel somewhere on a harp playing on clouds. No. The resurrected Lord points to resurrected bodies living in a resurrected world. A real, physical world that Christ will make perfect. C.S. Lewis has this Awesome quote, but it's massive, and we don't have all day, so I'll paraphrase. He says something to the uh, extent of, so often we look at, at kind of this world as what's real, and the resurrected world to come, heaven to come, as somehow a, a shadow or a, or a far-off uh, look-alike of what we have here. And goes, really, 
It's completely the other way around. What we have here is just a foretaste. It's just a shadow of what's to come, of the actual thing that's supposed to come later. What we have here is just like a a, a teeny little stream, a brook. What would it be like, he says, what would it be like to go to the fountainhead of which all of the good things in this life pour forth from? YOLO says, you only get live once, so grab all you can. He goes, no, I don't, I don't have to worry about this life. If you make that decision, I think Jesus did come back in your head. I think there's something in your, in your will that will start to align with it and say, you know, all of that stuff that was important pales in comparison. The, the great sex, Tim Keller says, in this world pales into comparison to the, to the great intimacy we'll have in the next. The, the great meals and food in this world pale in comparison to the wedding feast of the Lamb we'll have in the next. The great things to behold, things to see, are just nothing compared to the perfect recreation God has in store for us in the resurrected world. So... Who cares about soaking it all up now because so much is to come? And looking at the disciples, you might as well, you might as well give up all of your, give away all of your money, give away all of your time, give away all of your skills. Who really cares? Give away all of your pictures that you have because it all pales in comparison. It's nothing to the resurrected world that Jesus Christ is ushering in. Those are the things that we long for. Listen, a resurrected Jesus impacts our minds by forcing the decision. It impacts our will to long after the things he longs after. And it impacts our heart. You know, there's no, there's no tomb of Jesus. You can go to Palestine, you can go to Israel. You can pay a tour guide a few bucks and he'll show you a tomb of Jesus. But nobody knows. Nobody knows where it is. Nobody can point to the empty tomb and say, it's there. They took him off the cross and they put him in there. Why is that? Palestine, you go there, there's 50 different uh, tombs of famous people. Kings, leaders, philosophers. So many different tombs that are memorialized, that that are enshrined, that are kept just as they were so that visitors could come and to pay their respects. The tomb of Jesus, the empty tomb, why is it that if the Jesus movement got such legs under it so quickly and it was so recorded, you know, Joseph of Arimathea was the former owner of the tomb and he allowed Jesus to, no, no, why couldn't we find it? I don't think they cared. They didn't care about the tomb, so they didn't didn't bother preserving it or marking it. It's, for those of you who have children, for those of you who are going to have children, for those of you who are close to some children, You know that 
when they're with you, there is almost no time for anything. I mean, you're preoccupied with putting uh, food in their stomachs that didn't come out of a prepackaged container. <laughs> Maybe teaching them a couple things about this world, but, but like that is it. There's certainly no time uh, for reflection. And as they go through life, yeah, they, they grow up, they outgrow clothes, they're pitched, they're sold at garage sales, their room is constantly changing. And you know, eventually they're going to move out. Uh, maybe it's going to be moving away to college. Maybe they're going to get married. Maybe they're going to find an apartment across town or across country. Maybe something tragic is going to happen. And what meant nothing in the past, you've thrown away hundreds of pairs of shoes. But when they're gone, when they're missing, you go downstairs and you open up a box. And that box is an old pair of ratty shoes that they have outgrown years and years and years ago. And it's here. It's, it's here that you look back on and you go, I will never throw these away again. You don't memorialize a child's room while they're still with you. You don't care. You don't hold on to old clothes or old shoes while they're still running around down the hall. You don't care. But when they're gone, the room becomes a sacred space that is never touched. And old pairs of shoes that you once would have thrown away without a thought now become the most precious mementos that you will ever have. I don't think the followers of Jesus kept track of his tomb because they never felt like, like they've lost him. They had him. He was with them. He walked with them physically. He talked with them physically. He lived with them. And they watched him ascend to heaven, hearing him say, listen, I'm going to be right back. And they never thought that something like a tomb was worth hanging on to because they already had him with them. So I just want to ask, just want to end with two questions. Do you have him? Have you made the decision in your mind that this happened? And is God already starting to align your will, your desires to long after the things that he longs after and break your heart for the things that break his? Do you have him? And if not, would you like to? We're going to uh, pray in just a moment here and then the uh, worship team is going to lead us in 
And one more song, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Certainly a, a song that reflects on, on how we have him. He's ours. He lives with us still to this day. I don't want to do anything, um, I don't want to do anything weird about it. I don't want to do anything that would, that would turn you off from, from making the decision, from forcing the question, do you believe it? Did he rise? Is your will aligning? Do you have him? But in the prayer, I'm going to ask for three things. I'm just going to simply ask, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the sins that I've had. I'm sorry for the faults that I've done. Jesus, please forgive me. And thank you for dying and rising. Please. Sorry, please, thanks. And I invite you to, to, in your hearts and your minds, just to say those words after me. And if you believe it, if you want to have him, please pray along. Um, like I said, we're not going to have you do anything unusual, do anything out of the ordinary, but, but if, if you feel like for the first time or the first time in a long while, God has been touching your heart and, he, and you have him, I invite you uh, sometime to connect. We'd love to hear your story. Drop in the office, send an email, whatever it is. But we'd, we'd love to know about what God is doing. But, but like I said, that's what he's doing in your life. I invite you to stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God, Lord, uh, Lord, on some level, we're here this morning and we believe, or we want to believe, and we need you to help our unbelief, the doubts that creep in, the skepticism that creeps in. Lord, the animosity, the sins, the faults of other people that have, that have prevented this connection from taking place. God, we ask that you break down whatever stands between us and you allow yourself to be had, to break into our hearts. God, I ask along with everybody in the room who, who wants to receive you for the first time or for the first time in a long time, listen, Lord, we're sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've, I've made this relationship. I'm sorry for walking away. I'm, I'm sorry for anger. I'm sorry for rage. I'm sorry... For lust, I'm sorry for just simply being lazy with my relationship with you. Please forgive me, Lord. Blot out my sins. Nail them to the cross. Finish them. Bury them with you. Thank you, God, for sending your son, for suffering and dying so that we may live with a resurrected Lord, with resurrected bodies, in a resurrected world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.